Luke chapter 9, this is on page 1608 if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. This is God's word given to his people for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. Luke 9, verses 1 through 9. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. When I was a a young lad growing up, I always felt like August didn't really get a fair shake as far as being a, a month of summer vacation. Once August 1st hit, it seemed like everything was about going back to school, back to school, It was even more frustrating for me once I moved to the Chicago area and realized that you all began school before Labor Day, which I thought was rather absurd. I always felt like August should be a summer vacation month. Uh, But of course, once the month begins, everyone is about getting ready. And that's the way that much of life is now. We like to be prepared for things. If you want to join in any sort of activity, a sport or playing an instrument, anything at all, there's this big list now of things that you have to buy so that you can have them along with you and that you can be prepared. What does it feel like, though, when you don't have any of those things, when you're not prepared? It makes you feel a little bit vulnerable, doesn't it? And perhaps in some ways you can learn some lessons from that, sometimes good lessons that you ought to learn, sometimes things that you ought to correct, But in today's passage, there's something very important that we learn about the kingdom of God as Jesus sends the twelve out with nothing. It teaches us one of the mysteries of the kingdom of God. It teaches us that there is a power that goes beyond these apostles, these twelve. It is not they who are building this kingdom. It is not they who are causing it to grow. Though they seem helpless, they carry with them a power that can change the world itself. And the call upon all of us this morning is to know that power. To know that power that was with the twelve here in this passage. To trust that power and to live into that power. We see that as Jesus does a few different things in this passage. Jesus shares, he sends, and he suffers and calls us to suffer with him. Jesus shares, Jesus sends, and he, and he suffers and calls us to suffer with him. We see at the beginning of this passage that Jesus addresses the twelve. After Jesus came down off of the mountain, uh, in Luke chapter 6, he made these twelve to be his apostles, but they haven't really done much up to this point, have they? 
They've sort of been in training camp mode. They are being tutored and groomed and taught by Jesus. But Jesus sending them out here feels like it's a little bit early, doesn't it? It feels like the training wheels are coming off a little bit too early because even as recently as chapter 8, as Jesus calmed the winds and the waves on the Sea of Galilee, the disciples asked, who is this that the winds and the waves obey Jesus? So they're questioning about who exactly it is uh, that, that is this Jesus. It feels a little bit too early, and yet Jesus sends them out. He shares with them his power and authority, his power and authority. And these two things, power and authority, that are with Jesus have been really important throughout the Gospel of Luke. It tells us exactly how it is that Jesus has has been advancing the kingdom of God through his preaching and through his healing and ministering to the sick and the downtrodden. Jesus has power and authority because he is the Messiah. He is the one of God, from God, sent so that he might bring the full establishment of the kingdom, so that he might bring God's salvation to all of God's people. The power of Jesus has been on display as he's gone through Galilee, as he has been healing the sick. We remember even as recently as him healing the woman with the flow of blood, remember she touches his tassels and Jesus says, power has gone out from me. Healing power that has been evident in Jesus. Also authority that has been emphasized in Luke. If we think back to chapter 12 of Luke, the devil offered Jesus a certain kind of authority, didn't he? He brought him up to see all of the world. He said, I have the authority. The devil said to Jesus, I have the authority to give all of this to whomever will worship me. But Jesus refused that. He refused that authority. And in doing so, he came riding out of the desert to show that there's a different authority at work in what he is doing. It's authority that goes deeper. It's not a temporal and earthly kind of authority, which was what the devil was offering him. The authority of Jesus is one that is eternal and it shows us yet again the nature of the kingdom of God. This theme that comes up again and again and again in Luke, the kingdom of God, we wonder sometimes, what is it? Do we understand exactly what Jesus is saying when he talks about the kingdom? I was once given advice by a very brilliant and wise seminary professor as we, his students asked him about the kingdom of God, and he said, if you want to know about the kingdom, keep your eyes on the king. Look at the king, and he will tell you about his kingdom. Thus, we look to Jesus, and we ask, what kind of a king is he? What kind of a king is he? One of the ways in which he exercises his authority as king is that he goes about rebuking certain things, doesn't he? We've seen that word rebuke come up a few times in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 4, verse 36 says this, They were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word for with authority and power? See those two words again. Jesus rebukes the unclean spirits, and they come out. Jesus has been rebuking unclean spirits and sicknesses and even rebuking the stormy seas. In doing this, in rebuking all of these things, Jesus teaches us about his kingdom. Teaches us that he has come to deal with all of these realities that are part of a sinful and fallen and cursed world. Sin is like 
a sinister cancer that spreads throughout all of creation. It changes the way that the world operates. It flips everything upside down. Before sin, everything was in perfect harmony. But sin came in and messed all of that up. But Jesus comes along and he rebukes and reverses all of the effects of sin, as we have seen in Luke. Illness, disease, disasters, and even death itself. Jesus is the kind of king who has come to bind up the powers of sin and death. And that is what his kingdom does and accomplishes. Jesus has come to reclaim territory for the kingdom of God. Thus he shows that the pomp and circumstance, the earthly glory that was offered to him by the devil in chapter 4 is a cheap imitation of what his kingdom actually brings. Satan had authority over a sin-cursed world. Jesus has the authority to bring about the recreation of all things. Jesus is the cure for the cancer of sin and death. This is why his miracles are not an end in themselves. They attest to his authority and his power, but Jesus did not come to earth so that he could temporarily heal people from their diseases. He came so that he might show us the authority with which he is working to bind up the powers of sin and death. We see this in the way that he healed the paralytic. Remember he said, so that you might know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, rise, get up off your mat, walk, and go home. This is what we must see and understand. Jesus rebuking, Jesus' authority, all show us that he has come to bind up sin and death. Oftentimes we can become adjusted to the new normal of the world. Oh, that's just the way that things work. People live and people die. And in between, there's a whole lot of suffering and things that don't really make sense. But Jesus shows us that the world was not created to be that way. And the gospel of the kingdom shows that God has come in Jesus Christ to make all things new. This is the king. This is the kind of king that he is. This is his kingdom. And it is this that we must, by the Spirit, with the Spirit's help, learn to trust and to treasure more and more and more. This is what is confronted, this is what we are confronted by in the word of God. Are we learning to trust and to treasure more and more the authority and the power that Jesus brings with his kingdom? Are we trusting the word of God and the spirit working with the, the word of God to transform our minds and our hearts to make sure that we are treasuring the salvation that we have in the kingdom of God above all else? That we understand that Jesus has taken away our sin. That we understand that he has given us new life. The kingdom confronts us with this truth. And Jesus shares this power and authority with his apostles as he sends them out. So Jesus shares and then we see that Jesus sends. He sends them out to proclaim the kingdom. To attest to this power by healing the sick. That word for sick at the end of verse 2, is a word that means weak or helpless. This is a kingdom not for the strong and the mighty and the powerful. It's not for those who are consumed with the world or with the flesh. This is a kingdom uh, for those who understand their need for the kind of healing that Jesus brings. This is why, again, his miracles are such perfect pictures of God's salvation. 
the woman with the flow of blood, she had done everything that she can to be healed of her disease. She couldn't do it. Jairus' daughter, there was nothing that they could do for her as she laid in bed and her life slipped away from her. There was nothing that she could do to heal herself. But Jesus is the one with the power to do what man cannot do. And shows us once again the power that Jesus, the authority that Jesus has. Jesus comes to help the weak, to help those who cannot help themselves. I was reading this week and I thought this is such a great way of putting it. I read that grace is karma's worst nightmare. Grace is karma's worst nightmare. When people say karma, they're they're not usually talking about the full-on religious system that's associated with it. It's really a, a shorthand for saying people get what's coming to them. What goes around comes around. There's even sort of a uh, quasi-pseudo-Christian version of karma, right? There's this, and people sometimes think that in the Bible it says God helps those who help themselves. But as it regards to salvation, as it relates to salvation, what does the Bible show us? The Bible shows us that grace is God helping those who cannot help themselves. Grace is karma's worst nightmare because It gives the opposite of what people deserve. The opposite of what is coming to them. Grace is powerful and grace is relentless. Grace doesn't hand out gifts like Santa Claus giving to only those on the nice list. Grace gives full and free to the weak and the helpless. Grace gives the same forgiveness and salvation to the dropout and to the Ph.D., Grace gives the same love to the drunkard and to the teetotaler. To the Pharisee or to the publican, Jesus shows us all that according to salvation, we are helpless beggars. This, of course, does not mean that in the Christian life we see no correlation between reaping and sowing, between deeds and consequences, but the starting point of the Christian life must be grace. Grace gives us a place to stand. It gives us a place to stand. And when we stand in grace and we stand upon Jesus Christ, then we can live in the liberty that Jesus gives. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus sends out these apostles with nothing. Nothing for their journey. No food, no clothes, no money to buy food or clothes, no bag to collect things along the way. Completely dependent upon the provision of others. This is something of a a worst nightmare for many of us. In many ways, it's sort of like being sent out today on an important long mission with no car and no money and no smartphone, right? All of these things that we're constantly relying on. This would be especially difficult for families with small children, as I recently found out on our vacation. We had to bring, it seems that the smaller the children are, the more you have to bring for them. Uh, the minute I was done unloading the van, I had spent so much time doing that, I figured it was certainly time to start loading it uh, back up again, right? We're constantly prepared for things, and Jesus sends his apostles out to don't bring anything. The fact that Jesus does this teaches us a couple things about the mystery of the kingdom of God. It shows us first that the apostles conquered through the word. They conquered through The word, the the proclamation of the word of God. The twelve are going out essentially to conquer the world in a very real way. 
are being sent out to conquer the world. Jesus is advancing his kingdom, his kingdom of new creation, but he does not need an army of uh, horses and chariots and weapons and soldiers who are well-trained. He can send these 12 out into battle with nothing. Just like David and Goliath in the Old Testament, the God of Israel conquers not through the strength of man, but through the power of the word of God. All that the twelve need is their mouths to speak the eternal truths of God. We also see that the kingdom of God transforms hearts to allow these disciples to be dependent on the generosity of others. Once the truth of the gospel, the truth of the kingdom takes heart in, it takes root in the heart of a human being, there is this changed relationship to earthly goods that allows a generosity, a sharing heart to come forth. A couple of weeks ago, we studied the parable of the pearl of great price. And a merchant of fine pearls in his vocation exists for one reason to find and to exchange pearls of value. Thus, imagine a a merchant of fine pearls finding the single most valuable pearl in all of the world. It would make it easy for him, wouldn't it, to exchange all that he has to joyfully attain that one pearl of great price. And in Jesus Christ, human beings find the answer to their greatest need and the fulfillment of their greatest purpose. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And we can only do those things in and through Jesus Christ. It is in Jesus that human beings find the answer to the purpose for which they were created. They were created to know, love, glorify, and enjoy God through Jesus Christ. This is why when the rest of the world worries and pursues, obsesses incessantly, over earthly goods, God's people do not. Thus we see the generosity that the apostles were constantly shown. They ended up never lacking anything because the kingdom of God brings about this reality of transformed hearts. And some people read this and say, okay, is is this then how we are supposed to send out missionaries from now on? Should this be a rule for the church? It's actually interesting that Jesus rescinds this rule in Luke chapter 22. Towards the end of the gospel, Jesus tells his apostles, when you go out now, take provisions, take food, take money, take a bag, all of those things. And yet, uh, we ask ourselves, so at this point in the gospel, why does Jesus send them out with nothing? And the reason is what we see here at the end of this passage in the words of Herod. Ultimately, what we find out is that the apostles were sent out with nothing so that they might image the pattern of Jesus' road to glorification. In Jesus' road to glorification, what precedes it? What precedes the glory of Jesus? Suffering. Suffering precedes the glory of Jesus. And thus, uh, in his earthly ministry, Jesus wanted his apostles to mirror or to image that pattern, suffering before glory. Herod hears about Jesus. It's interesting, isn't it, that there's this political leader that now has gotten word of who Jesus is. And he wants to know, who is this Jesus? He echoes the question of the Galilean people. Who is this who teaches with power and authority? 
He echoes the question even of the disciples in chapter 8. Who is this that the winds and the waves obey him? Chapter 9 of Luke is this, this culminating point of answering who is Jesus? Who is, who is he? What should I do about it? We see that no one suggests that he is the Messiah. There are people who say perhaps he is a prophet. Elijah, John the Baptist, another old prophet who is back from the dead. No one says that he is the Christ. But his connection here in the end of this passage to the prophets shows us that he is going to have a road that is very similar to all the prophets. Persecuted, rejected, but he is also more than a prophet because he is the Christ. His suffering will bring about the salvation of others. And thus here at the beginning of chapter 9 we see a shift in the narrative of Luke. He goes from Galilean celebrity to suffering servant. The Savior who is destined to suffer and die in Jerusalem. Jesus didn't have the star-studded stroll down the red carpet to stardom and glory. Jesus was constantly trying to show his followers that he was destined to suffer. Sometimes he would tell people, don't go and share what I did. Don't speak about what I've done. As he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, remember there's a miracle-hungry mob right outside the house, and Jesus does that miracle in private. He does it to show that before he ascends to his heavenly throne, he must suffer. Answer 37 of the Heidelberg Catechism Beautiful way of putting it, and and many of us know it quite well. It says that during Jesus' whole life on earth, his whole life on earth, he suffered, especially at the end, but his whole life. And he did this in order that he might be the atoning sacrifice to set us free from eternal condemnation so that we might be given eternal life. He suffered so that we might not suffer eternally. It is here that we learn the special mystery about the kingdom of God, the glorification of our Savior, the salvation of all those who believe would be granted through suffering. And the twelve image this pattern. They image this pattern of Jesus during his earthly ministry. Just like Jesus is poor, they are made poor. Just like Jesus had no earthly possessions, so they are sent out with no earthly possessions, but possessing that which is most important. Though having nothing, they have everything. Though having no earthly possessions, they are given the heavenly possessions, the true treasure treasure of the kingdom of God, the inheritance which is laid up for us in eternity. We're not apostles. We're not given the same authority and power to go out and to heal, uh, to attest to the words of Jesus in the way that the apostles were. And yet at the same time, uh, we do image this pattern, suffering before glorification, Christian suffering can take many forms. For everyone, at the very least, it is the daily relentless spiritual struggle that we all go through battling our sinful flesh. If we're not aware of the fact that that is a form of Christian suffering, we need to wake up. It's a relentless spiritual struggle every day of trusting God, the power of God working in and through us that we might battle our sinful flesh. It can be bearing reproach and scorn for Christ's name. Having a different experience with earthly goods and treasures because you love Jesus Christ. 
It can be the seemingly endless battle with sickness and death and pain or trouble or sorrow. All of those can be forms of Christian suffering. In all of these things, we can endure them in a way that's unlike any other people on earth because we know that glory follows suffering. We also learn, lastly, that as the apostles were sent out with nothing, this is how the church ministers the gospel to a world that is in need. The gospel is not, does not grow and advance. It does not take root because of power or riches or human righteousness. If it were true that following the one true God and obeying him brought you goods and wealth and, and everything on this earth, then everyone would follow Jesus. There would be no call of the gospel. There would be no call of the kingdom. If following and obeying and loving the one true God fixed all of your problems in this life, then who would ever refuse it? No one. But this is the paradox of Christ's kingdom. It advances through weakness. It advances through suffering. It advances through the weakness that is shown in our own sinfulness because we still fall, fail, and mess up. If it were our own righteousness that advanced the kingdom of God, the kingdom would have failed long ago. But the fact that the apostles bring nothing with them here in this passage is an analogy to how we as the church minister the gospel. If it were up to karma, we would all be headed for a very bad place. But the Savior looks at empty-handed people who deserve nothing, and he fills them and their lives with the riches of his grace. This is the paradox that is centered upon the cross, where we see our Savior lifted up to be the payment for sin. It was at that point of apparent greatest weakness that the power of God was unleashed upon a perishing world, where we now have the opportunity to live in this world, showing those around us that in the shadow of the cross we live, that it is in Christ and upon the rock of grace that we walk, and that even when we fail, God wraps his arms around us in love and grace, and we know that nothing and no one will ever be able to separate us from the love of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled to be called your children. We thank you so much for the miracle of grace. Father, we thank you for the reminder that it is nothing that we bring simply to the cross we cling. Father, we are often brokenhearted in this world. We are often downtrodden. Father, we pray that you would make us faithful. Father, we pray that you would give us the courage to to love you and to love our neighbor. Father, that we might be a light in a dark world. Father, that we would not mirror the things around us that we see, which is often so easy to do, but that we would mirror the character and the love of our Savior. We thank you for him. We pray all these things in his name alone. Amen. Let us respond.